Friends, as we come to the message portion of our service today, uh, the building blocks, building upon the foundation of Jesus, a life builder series, uh, I just want to encourage you to take your Bible. We will be primarily in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. So have your Bible open throughout this morning to Ephesians chapter 6. Most of the scripture referred to will be on the screen as well. Uh, But Ephesians chapter 6 is where we are going to be focusing this morning. As we have tailored this series around Paul's message to the Corinthians, that uh, when they were having divisions in the church, uh, they were divided between, of all things, who their favorite preacher or teacher was. Some people said, I line up behind that, that gifted orator, that lawyer from Egypt, Apollos. I want to follow the teaching of Apollos. And others say, I go all the way back to the founder of this church. I want to follow the Apostle Paul and his teaching. Paul wrote to them and says, it's not a human teacher that you follow. We all follow Jesus, and our lives are built on the foundation of Jesus. There's no other foundation than Jesus. As he says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that each one should be careful how he builds on the foundation of Christ. He's saying there are things in your life that as a Christian you need to grow in and to mature in. There are things that please God, that make you more and more like his son Jesus as you follow him and Christian character becomes evident in your life. Paul says that those things will be rewarded in eternity. Like gold and silver, when they are, when they are uh, exposed to the fire of God's judgment, they are going to be pure. But there's much of our life that we build on the foundation of Jesus that is going to burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. It has no eternal and lasting value. Life seems long some days, especially when you're young and you're bored. But let me tell you, it goes fast. Before you know it, it's gone. And you may say to yourself, I wish I had been more careful how I built on my life. I wish I had been more faithful in building on the foundation of Jesus and taking my walk in Christ, my faith, and who I am as a child of God more seriously. For the last number of weeks and leading into the Easter season, we have looked at a number of those areas of how we can build upon Christ. Jesus is our foundation but our assurance in Christ, how important that is. Last week, for instance, we looked at the Comforter. Jesus says, I will send you another Helper, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and how key he is for the well-rounded, fully formed disciple of Christ. This morning, though, I've always said, with all the good news, you have to pay attention to the bad news. Without bad news, the good news isn't actually good. The bad news is an important part. And this is a part that we often don't stress, especially for young believers in the Christian life, we don't want to frighten them, we don't want to put them off or scare them, but it's part of what we face every day. I've called this morning's message, Our Battle. That's the phrase the scripture uses. We are at war. We are at war as children of God in a world that is hostile to God and his son Jesus. Hmm. Spiritual warfare is what the screen says. 
And that sounds something that can be frightening to people. They think of exorcisms and and the demonic world, and those are realities that uh, we won't have time to focus on this morning. Uh, Just going through one topic a week, we have no other choice but to to just survey it very briefly. And I always encourage you uh, to dig in. Let this be a jumping off point for your study of God's word. But the Bible teaches that we are at war in this world. We're at war. And unless you know you are, you are going to fail in many areas of your life. You may wonder why you're not growing as a Christian, that you're falling to temptation, that your life isn't what you know it should be in Christ. And often that's because we neglect this important area. Now, when it comes to spiritual warfare, I want to preface it right up front. I've seen both of these extremes in my ministry, and we have to be careful about them. We need to take a godly, balanced approach to spiritual warfare based only on the Word of God, not the teaching of maybe a popular teacher or or just uh, conventional wisdom. There are a lot of... uh, conventional wisdom there's a lot of uh almost like urban myths in the church going around a a christian urban myth that there's such a thing uh around this area of spiritual warfare especially in connection to the demonic i say base your beliefs on the word of god and you won't go wrong and you'll be balanced avoid the extremes the extremes are the skeptic who doesn't believe that there's malevolent spiritual uh, entities in the world active today. You're skeptical. You neglect this whole area. You don't think about it. You don't believe it. You don't think there's an actual uh, personal devil, that that's not a real creature. It's just a metaphor for, for evil. You don't think it's real. You just neglect it. That's one extreme. The other is, unhealthy fascination that this is what you consume constantly you're fixated on it and i've seen people go to the extreme that they believe that they're 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 oppressed if not outright possessed by the demonic and it's all around them they believe that it inhabits everything that every item in their house might have demons in it you know that there may be curses placed on it and they're constantly living their life in fear It's a hysterical, unhealthy way to live. It's not really the picture of the the spiritual world that we see in Scripture, but it's based on popular teaching of people available today. Don't go to the extremes. Unhealthy fascination or skeptical neglect. It's one of the things that's a given of the Christian life, that there's spiritual warfare at play In this world today until the return of Christ when all things are set right we are in a hostile environment and we should have tools in our toolbox we should build on the foundation of Christ a healthy understanding of it and practice in this area now I apologize we're going to make three points today and being a pastor they're all going to begin with the letter E when it comes to our battle and the first one is going to seem to have a little more focus. But it just, it just is because I, I, I don't want to have an unhealthy fixation on the devil or the enemy. And that's our first point today, that in this battle, we have an enemy. But there's a wise saying, know your 
enemy. If we are ignorant of our enemy and his schemes and traps, we will fall to them. And so we need to spend some time knowing the enemy. And that's appropriate because that's one of the names of the devil is the adversary or the enemy. Now, as I mentioned, you have your Bible open to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians is a wonderful letter. It's packed full of incredible teaching about the heavenlies and our place in Christ. It's such a powerful letter for that. But in the last chapter of the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul will turn his attention to the struggle, the battle, spiritual warfare that we have in this world. Now, it's interesting that he's writing to the Ephesians. Remember from the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul's history in this church? Ephesus was one of the great cities of the ancient world, and it contained an amazing thing, one of the wonders of the ancient world. You know those list of wonders like the pyramids, the, uh, the, the mausoleum of, of uh, Halicarnassus, the lighthouse at Alexandria, the Colossus of Rhodes, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I don't want to list them all, I'll forget one. But one of those great wonders was at Ephesus, and that was the great temple of Artemis. Artemis, or to the Romans, Diana, was a, was a, uh, a goddess in many areas, especially fertility and life, and she was loved and worshipped by the Ephesians. And not only was that their religious life, but that was their business life too, because pilgrims came from across the Roman world to go to that temple to worship, and while they were there, they bought little idols that were copies made out of silver of the great golden idol, uh, which was kind of a gruesome, horrible-looking thing, in the temple itself, the Artemisium, the Temple of Artemis. Now, in 2011, my son Mike and I, hiking across uh, modern-day Turkey, we went to that temple. Today, it's a swampy piece of land with uh, a few uh, partial columns still there. You see the old stairway going into the temple. What once was up on a hill is now down below ground level. It's not much to look at. It's not a wonder of the world anymore. But it helps us remember what Paul faced there. So many people were turning away from the false teaching of this idol Artemis and turning to the good news about Jesus that it hit the pocketbook of the silversmiths. Their trade in silver idols was dropping off and they were furious of it. It hit them where it hurts. And so do you remember the story? There was a great riot and they wanted to get rid of Christians. And number one on their hit list was the apostle Paul. And there was a riot in the great theater and Paul was going to go to the theater, which is an enormous Roman theater, seats 20,000 plus. He was going to go there and preach to them. But the local churches, they will tear you limb from limb. And they hustled Paul out of town. Now remember that story. Because as you look at the story, you say, well, who was Paul's enemy there? The enemy, well, number one, he was named was Demetrius. Remember, he was the chief silversmith that whipped up all of the anger against the apostle Paul. And the others were the silversmiths, the worshipers of Artemis, all of these people, flesh and blood. But we get to Ephesians and Paul reflecting on spiritual warfare says, number one, they're not the enemy. Those are just people, just like us. 
Open your Bible, as I said, to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll begin our reading in verse 10 to verse 12. Paul says, finally, he's getting near the end of his letter. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Get this, remember that riot, the people, Demetrius? For our struggle, our battle, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul says our fight's not against flesh and blood. Otherwise, we would just be political activists. We would be standing up for our ideology, our point of view, in the public square of discourse and politics and so forth. And there is that that needs to take place. But we need to be aware that behind the flesh and blood, there is a spiritual realm. People are either in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light and life through Jesus. Those two kingdoms are in conflict in this present world and age. It's a time of conflict. And Paul says the conflict fundamentally is spiritual in nature. Friends, keep that in mind when you consume your news, when you see the events of the world. Filter it through God's word, understanding that our enemy, our opposition is not flesh and blood. There's a spirit The Bible says that the devil is the the God of this world. He He is the leader. He is the one that sets the pace. He's the fashion setter. I always think of that when I see popular entertainment. When I see what comes out of Hollywood, whether it's filmed in Canada or where it is, Hollywood is shorthand for the entertainment industry. They are leaders in moving society toward perversion, anti-family, Just a demonic, evil agenda. That underlies so much of what they say and do. They're the propaganda wing of of Satan. There are good things that you can consume. You You need to be careful. But so much of it has a spiritual, malevolent backing to it. The fashion industry. Whatever you pick, human, this world, the human sphere we live in, is spiritual in nature, our conflict. Well, in this conflict, we want to look at the enemy more closely. We'd like to use as a shorthand Satan or the devil, but the Bible says your enemy really is threefold. The first is, as I mentioned, the devil. In Greek, that's diabolo. And what that means is, in Old Testament and New, the devil means the accuser. Just as we see in the book of Job, the devil, he goes throughout the world and Satan comes before God to accuse Job. Well, the Bible says he accuses the saints now. He's the accuser. That's one of the things that this this, uh, fallen angelic entity does. He is an accuser. The name Satan refers to the fact that he is the adversary. He is the enemy, the accuser, the enemy. And the Bible portrays Satan as a personal being, that he is a real individual, that he's not a metaphor for an idea or a bad part of human nature, that there is a real devil. 
Some people say, well, that's obvious, good and evil. There's God and Satan. Oh, no. Never do that. Never put Satan on any continuum with God. He is not the bad God and we have the good God. No. He is a created being. Created by God and fallen into sin. He is limited. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. His limitations are that of a created angelic being, though created powerful and glorious uh, to do the will of God originally. The Bible is not explicit or overly clear about the origin of Satan, the father of lies. It just isn't. In Isaiah chapter 14, there's an interesting passage, though, that many scholars believe refers to Satan himself and where he came from that he was created an angelic being and through his pride wanting to be equal or even above god his inner dialogue is that yeah i could do that i you know i he's got i and that worship for god that should be mine and that through this pride and covetousness he fell from his place in heaven into sin well in isaiah chapter 14 isaiah the prophet is speaking to the king of Babylon. But during this taunt of the king of Babylon, who thinks he's so powerful, but he is just a pawn, a, a game piece in the hand of God, the king of Babylon is referenced as Lucifer. I believe Isaiah is using, in those days, a well-known story of the fall of Lucifer and saying, king of Babylon You are like Lucifer in your pride. And as his pride led to his fall to the pit, you are going to fall too. I think it's being used in that way. And yet in the reference, we can see a glimmer of where our enemy came from. Beginning in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, the prophet writes, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. (laughs) Satan's inner dialogue, one of pride, I will make myself like God. And isn't that the same temptation that the serpent offered to Adam and Eve? When you know good from evil, you will be like God. The same poison that killed him, he's offering it to our parents, Adam and Eve. But, verse 15 says, but you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. I believe that could be referencing an older understanding of who the enemy is used in this taunt against the king of Babylon. Also, again, don't put Satan on a continuum with God. Revelation chapter 12 is a fascinating chapter. It speaks of the dragon who is a a picture of Satan. And it says in Revelation chapter 12, Verse 7, and there was war in heaven. It seems that when Satan fell, he didn't fall alone when he fell into sin, that he had angels that followed him in his sin. And there was war in heaven. 
Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth in his angels with him. He is a created being. And not only is he not God's equal, he's not Michael's equal. The archangel Michael, in the truth and the power of God, goes to war against Satan, who is not strong enough, and is hurled from heaven. Earlier in the chapter, it says the third of the stars were white from the sky by the dragon's tail, indicating maybe as many as a third of angels fell with Satan. And that leads us to understand that our war, our battle is not against the enemy Satan alone, but against his followers, demonic, fallen, angelic beings who are active today in this present age, this present darkness, this spiritual age. But they're created beings with limitations as well. How do they attack God's people today? Often, by acting as counterfeits, as masquerading. The Bible says that from the serpent on, as Satan took on the guise of the beautiful serpent in the Garden of Eden to entice the woman to eat the forbidden fruit. Well, even today, Satan can appear like an angel of light. It's no wonder to us today that many of the, many of the false teachings were founded by angelic beings. Whatever their name, whatever their guise, for Satan can wear a mask. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul writing to the church warns them of this. He's talking about false teachers. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading, wearing a mask, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Wolf in sheep's clothing, seeking to come among God's people and lead them astray. Be aware of the wiles of the serpent. Even today, Many of his, te- his, his, uh, his false teachers uh, follow that same strategy. Also in 2 Corinthians, but a little bit earlier in chapter 2, we're warned that when there is trouble in the church, we know who's behind it. It's a spiritual struggle. I have seen churches split over the silliest things, over arguments over carpet, paint color, types of music, not important fundamental issues, but silly things. And I always look at these and I say, there's a conflict. It's usually personality behind it. There's a lot of self involved. People who are wanting to get their own way, butting heads and splitting the body of Christ. But that's short-sighted of me. I need to look beyond it and realize there is a malevolent actor at work. That behind it, there is a spiritual aspect and Satan and his followers are involved in the problems in the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in the first letter to the Corinthians, he addresses a number of 
terrible sins in the church. Terrible sins. Awful sins. And he says, you guys are putting up with it. This, this sinner is fellowshipping in the open with you, living in sin, and you guys have not addressed this. There needs to be church discipline take place. Now, in the second letter to the Corinthians, that discipline has taken place. That person has uh, been disciplined. He's been put out of the fellowship for a time. And now Paul addresses that same situation. And he says, don't leave them hung out to dry. As they repent of their actions, forgive them. Wrap your arms around them. Restore them. Bring them in. Or Satan is going to win a victory. He is going to win a victory not only in the repentant sinner's life, but in the lives of those inside the church who look down their nose at the sinner and legalistic pride comes out. We think, oh, I would never do that. Well, truth be, you might not do that, but you'll certainly do a lot of other things. There's none righteous, not one. So when it comes to that situation, Paul writes this. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there's anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Oh, he would love to break up the body of Christ. Because what is the worst witness to a community that needs to see the love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus as a reality? Christians who fuss and fight. And they say, if they can't get along, what hope is there? What reality is there? That's one of Satan's greatest schemes. We need to be aware of this. But friends, the Bible says not only is our enemy the devil and the demonic realm and his followers, but our enemy is also the world. The world. Now that Greek word, the world, cosmos, has a special meaning in Scripture. It's not the physical world. God created it, looked at creation and said, it is good. There's a particular way, though, Scripture uses the term the world to describe human society apart from God. Fallen, sinful society. I mentioned the perversions of Hollywood a little while ago. That's part of the world. That's part of the world. Politics, anything apart from God or in opposition to God, that's the world. You turn on television, your commercial, everything. That's the world. We live in it. Sometimes we, we don't even notice it. It's like asking a fish in your aquarium, what's it like to be wet? Well, they don't know. They've never been dry. We've never not been in this sinful world. So sometimes we don't even notice it. We take it for granted. And yet, spiritually, it's part of the battle. It is in opposition to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this dark age. As the apostle, not the, uh, the apostle John writes, rather, in 1 John chapter 2, he puts it so simply. I love the letters of John. John says, do not love the world. He's not saying, hate the grass and then go out and kick a tree. No, no, that's not what he's saying. He's talking about fallen world, fallen society. 
Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. The lust of the world. And that's a big part of the world's ideology. That it's all about you. And whatever you desire, the cravings of the sinful man, translated in that passage, whatever you desire. And that's the word in, in Scripture for lust. It is, it is unhealthy desire for something that is forbidden. And friends, we know lust is not just. It's not just a sexual thing. People lust for money. <laughs> they lust for things. All of us do. We all have that unhealthy desire. Oh my word, every year beautiful new cars and trucks come out. And, and mine might be two years old or in more reality closer to more like 12. But, but if I had one two years old, I would still look at the new ones and say, oh boy, I really need that one. I need that. I need this new computer. I need, what iPhone are we up to now? Anyone? Twelve. Oh, Isabel, I need an iPhone 12. No, I don't. You know, it's that unhealthy thing. And it can be for power. It can be for food. It can be for things that in and of themselves may be perfectly wholesome. But when you have that unhealthy, selfish craving for it, it's part of the world. It really is. And that leads us to the third enemy, the devil, the world. The last one is us ourselves. It's the flesh. There is a traitor in the camp. It's your own heart will be the enemy, the flesh. As I mentioned recently in a, in a message, that Greek word flesh is so powerful. It's often translated completely different in modern English translations. It's the Greek word sarks. You know, like a form of cancer, a sarcoma. Well, that comes from that Greek word sarks, the physical body, the flesh. But scripture uses it in a spiritual way. It is just like the world is society apart from Jesus. Your flesh is your human nature apart from Christ. It's the old heart, the sinful heart that is all you had before you met Jesus. But as a child of God, you've been given a new heart, a new nature, a spiritual nature as a, as a child of God through Jesus but unfortunately, the old nature doesn't disappear. It doesn't disappear. It's always there. It's always wanting its time back in control on the throne of our lives with its hands on the steering wheel making the decisions. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I have to die every day. He says, die to that old nature and live to Jesus, the new nature, the flesh, fallen human nature. Romans chapter 7 speaks of that. And I have a translation here. It's not from the NIV, so I can't read it from my new international Bible. I have to look at the screen, which on YouTube is up here, but in the church is over here. It's the English Standard Version. 
wonderful new english translation very literally true it's very good to use in study the esv says in romans chapter 7 17 and following so now it's no longer i who do it but the sin that dwells within me for i know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh his fallen nature he's talking about the war on the inside of us For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. (laughs) He says, it's at war with the Spirit. Who can save me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God through Jesus, our Lord. Jesus has the power. We have a choice. We have the freedom to choose to live in our new nature and not our old. The devil, the world, and the flesh. Oh, who can win this battle? It seems like the deck is stacked against you. But don't despair. Friends, when it comes to spiritual warfare, if you don't get anything out of this morning, anything else, remember this. You are in a spiritual battle, but you are not fighting for the victory. You're not fighting for the victory. No matter what tools are at your disposal, you're not fighting for the victory. No! As we'll celebrate at the end of the service today, at communion, Jesus has won the victory. The victory is won through his death and resurrection. He won the battle over sin and death. No, when it comes to your spiritual battle, you don't fight for the victory. You fight from victory. The victory is won. It's yours. You just need to grasp it you don't fight for the victory as a child of god you fight from victory in the time remaining we want to quickly look at two areas that paul speaks of in ephesians that give us hope two passages and then we'll go to communion the first focuses on not our enemy for the battle but our equipment remember the three e's i mentioned our equipment how does god equip you as his child to face Satan, the world, and the flesh. They're right here in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. The Apostle Paul continues. He says, Therefore, since our war is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and and spiritual darkness in heavenly places, he says, Therefore, Because it's not a physical but a spiritual battle. Therefore, verse 13, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet 
of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, these are our equipment, the full armor of God, as we're told earlier in the passage. Put on the full armor of God. As the picture before you reminds you, the armor of God that Paul is describing is from his time. And as he was writing this, these are prison letters. The Apostle Paul is in custody. And he was often in close custody. That means he was chained every waking hour to a Roman soldier. He had daily in his sight this example. He knew what Roman soldiers wore. He knew what their armor looked like and the purposes it served. And he uses that as a picture of God's great equipment that he gives to you as you fight the spiritual battle from your place of victory. As he goes through this, oftentimes we preachers, we talk at length about the Roman, the Roman centurion and what their armor was, each piece, to help us understand that. But rather than doing that in the brief time we have, I just want to remind you of what those armor pieces mean. We see here, he says, primarily the belt, it's truth. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. What does that mean when we come to fight the evil one? Well, his language is lies. The devil's schemes are always based on lies. In John chapter 8, Jesus says he can't speak anything else. Satan is a liar. In fact, he's the father of lies. Remember Isaiah chapter 14? Satan's saying to himself, I will be above God himself. That's a lie. That's probably the first lie. So to face lies, we stand in the truth. God's truth. Simple truth. Have you noticed in the world today, this evil society in opposition to God's truth, how truth is rejected as a concept? No, there's no truth anymore. Everything is relative. There's no absolute truth. Not only do they know that they don't have the truth that God's word presents, but they want to get rid of the concept of truth altogether. Truth, the truth of God, is so important. That's how we overcome the lies of Satan and the world. Then we're told that our breastplate is righteousness. Now, friends, this isn't your good deeds. The righteousness that protects you is the righteousness of Jesus that is yours through faith in Christ. Remember the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3? He said, now there is a righteousness from God that is through faith in Jesus. A righteousness apart from the law testified by the law and prophets that is yours through faith in Jesus. It's God's righteousness. Our righteousness as humans in God's sight is filthy rags. And so, as Jesus is our Lord and Savior and lives in our hearts, God sees you in Christ. His righteousness is yours. It protects you. It is your righteousness now through faith. The readiness, the shoes represented the readiness that comes to the gospel of peace. Now that's one thing it helps to understand Roman shoes. As you see in the picture, you say, well, those are just some nice high-top sandal he's wearing. The Roman soldier, they did wear a type of sandal, but it was closer to a boot. 
It was heavy leather. It protected the feet. But the interesting part of it, through the soles, the leather soles of those sandals, the Romans hammered nails, so the nails stuck down. They were hobnail sandals, hobnail boots. And those nails, when they were on slippery ground in the battle, they stomped down, they dug in their feet, and they held firm. What will help you stand firm in this world of lies and opposition? The gospel of peace. Nothing can move you because through Jesus, you have peace with God and peace with your neighbor. Peace with God and man is yours through the good news of the gospel. You can now stand fast. Another thing we see is that faith is a great gift to us. Simply trusting God counteracts much of the devil's schemes. Because the lies of the devil, they are to incite fear into your lives. I know so many Christians who are hindered because they live fear-based lives. They're always, and it often centers around how we raise our children. We're so fearful about everything for our children. The Bible says, no, Satan's darts are often fear-based. Faith and trust in God is like a shield. Those enormous shields the Roman soldiers carried, big, tall things, that when the flaming arrows hit, they would extinguish. It puts out. Faith is stronger than fear, and it's yours in Christ. Oh, the helmet of salvation. Not only is our salvation through Jesus, but I believe it's pictured as a helmet because it protects the mind. Scripture says that we're to take every thought captive for Jesus' sake. Don't have an undisciplined mind that always dwells on, on fleshly or evil things. Feed your heart and your mind through your eyes and ears on good things, the Word of God and wholesome things. And speaking of the Word of God, not only is the armor defensive in nature, but we have a weapon as well. And it is the sword of the Spirit. Used by the Holy Spirit, the Word of God is powerful. In fact, just as a physical sword, the gladius on the hip of every Roman soldier, that short sword, they carried a long lance called a pilus uh, that they would fight through a shield wall, but up close and personal, they used the gladius. That's where gladiators' names came from, the short sword. And that sword was to pierce a human body. And just as a sword physically pierced the human body, only the word of God can pierce the human heart to reach you who you are on the inside. Remember Peter preaching last week on the day of Pentecost? And it says that the hearers were cut to the heart. They were convicted by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. What must we do to be saved? We have the word of God. We need to know it. It needs to be in us be used by the Holy Spirit. That's equipment. That's just touching on it. Oh, friends, we have so much fighting from a place of victory. But finally, the third E is the energy to do it. It's the power. The power you need to go into battle. That power, whether uh, it's the Greek word uh, dunamis, where we get our word dynamite, it's a powerful thing. Or exousia when we speak of power always in scripture it says you have power that's freedom to do something your hands aren't tied anymore as when you were a 
you were a person apart from Christ. You didn't know Jesus yet. You were a slave to sin and death. You couldn't help it. You were tied up. But in Christ, you've been set free. You now have the power, the freedom to choose to live and follow Jesus every day. The freedom, the power, the energy to do that, Paul says, comes to us in a beautiful way. We finish looking at Ephesians 6 by looking at verse 18. Paul finishes the full armor of God by saying, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Prayer is the power of the Christian life. Prayer is the power. Now we see something interesting. There's so much in this verse. I I, I mentioned, let's make this full screen and just dig into it for a minute. Every phrase and clause is important in this verse. It begins, Paul says, and pray in the Spirit. As we saw last week in Romans chapter 8, when you pray, you are in the Spirit. Your gift, the Comforter, your Helper, the Holy Spirit, intercedes for you. He translates your prayers into the will of God and speaks to the very heart of God. Now that's the biblical formula to pray. I love to hear my grandkids pray. And young children in general, who do they pray to? They start out, Dear Jesus. And I don't correct them because I know they love Jesus and they're talking to him. But the Bible says we pray to the Father, our Father who is in heaven. We pray to the Father through our Lord Jesus. We pray to the Father through Jesus in the Spirit. It's a triune act for the triune God. To the Father through Jesus, in the Spirit. So as you pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes on your behalf and speaks to God. Do you remember the furniture in the tabernacle in the temple? One little piece of furniture, kind of overshadowed by the Ark of the Covenant and those fancy things, the enormous altar out front, was the little altar of incense. A little golden altar with a bowl on it that the priest would put a pile of incense. Now this incense wasn't just picked up down at the corner store. It was a special mixture based on God's own plan. Now that should be instructive to us. The priests would light that and the beautiful smoke, sweet-smelling smoke would go up. That was a picture of prayer. That was a, a prayer metaphor. We pray according to God's plan for His will. That's the incense. But it's the Holy Spirit who ignites that prayer, puts the power to it, and takes it to the very heart of God. We pray in the Spirit, Paul says. Not just prayers of, uh, you know, when things are good or at a meal, but on all occasions. On all occasions, the Bible says, pray continuously. And that doesn't mean just have your eyes shut, just talking constantly. Jesus says in Matthew that the pagans pray that way and think that God will hear them because of their many words. He says, be in an attitude of prayer. It's as if you leave the line open. I've heard of young people so in love that they talk at night. 
and they just spend time. They just keep the line open. Maybe it's their cell phone, and, and they'll fall asleep, and the line's open, and they're connected. That's so sweet. Until you get the bill. But it's, it's so awesome. That's a picture of what we need to be with God. He's with us all the time. And we're in a constant conversation. There was a wonderful Carmelite uh, monk years ago, Brother Lawrence, who his teaching and his, 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 his sermonettes were collected into a little valuable little volume called Practicing the Presence of God. Turning the mundane part of your life into worship, knowing that you're doing it with God. Gardening with God. You can do anything with God. He's there with you. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Not only asking a request, but bringing a prayer of praise, a prayer of intercession for others. Pray with all kinds of prayers. And then Paul says, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. Watch and pray, Jesus said. Watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. Watch and pray. Pray for what's going on around you. Be alert. Let God's Spirit sensitize it to you and be persistent in your prayers. Jesus' wonderful story of the unjust judge and the persistent widow, the application, he said, was he taught this so they would know to always pray and never give up. Be persistent. Keep on praying for all the saints. Jesus taught you to pray not my Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But our Father. We're part of a family. And so we pray for one another. That's why we share those prayer requests each week. Pray for one another. That's the power. It ignites your prayers and unleashes the power of God, which you need, friends, because we're in a battle. Last week we looked at the gifts of the Spirit and reflected on the words of Father Christmas in the Chronicles of Narnia when he said, my gifts are tools, not toys. The Christian life, friends, that follows from that, it's not a playground. It's a battleground. And we need to face it that way. Not with fear and trepidation, but with courage and joy. You're ambassadors of the King. You're not fighting for the victory. The victory's won. You're fighting from victory. Remember that. Build that into your life. Friends, at this time, I want to invite you to, to bow with me and prepare your hearts for the communion table. The Bible speaks of communion, and one of the things it says is we ought not to do it in an unworthy manner, not recognizing this is Jesus we're remembering. It's what he did for us. So let's spend a time briefly in prayer and then we'll share the elements together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word today. Lord, we just touched the surface of what it's like to live in this present age. An age of darkness. And yet, Lord, we are children of light. We're told to walk in the light. We're told to wear the armor of light. Lord, we thank you that the victory is won. But till then, Father, help us to be mindful that we face the schemes of the devil. Lord, we, play, we face the pull of this old world. And Lord, we have the old nature, the flesh, always seeking to bring us back 
to where we once began. But Lord, we want to move on in our faith and to grow up in Jesus. And part of that, Father, is keeping Jesus clearly in mind as we focus our eyes and set our hearts on him. Lord, your word tells us that on the night that he was betrayed, he gave us this gift to remember his body and his blood shed for us. Lord, we do that now, recognizing your son, thanking you for him. We couldn't do it for ourselves. And so Jesus, in his love, he reached down low and he did it for us. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Friends, I invite you to take the bread in hand. And as we do that, we remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in a corrective passage on the Lord's Supper. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Friends, let's take the bread now, remembering the body of Jesus given for us freely. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it. Amen. As we continue on in the passage, verse 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup now, remembering the shed blood of Jesus, and do this in remembrance of him. Amen. Friends, let's close this time together with the freedom and the power that God means us to have. Let's set it free in our lives through His Holy Spirit as we pray in the Spirit on all occasions, wearing the full armor that God has given each one of you. He's equipped you to take His love to this hurting world. Let's leave now this place of worship and learning around God's Word and go to our places of ministry. This week, it's going to be cold out there, but you're going to cross paths with people who need the one who lives in your heart. They need Jesus. Let them see him in you and hear about him through you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, bless your people. Make us a blessing. Lord, bless us that we in turn may be a blessing to others. Lord, thank you for your truth that we can share. Thank you for faith which keeps us firm. Thank you for a solid ground to stand on because we have been saved. We have peace with God. Lord, equip us, send us, empower us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.